So take the leap. And in order to gain the courage, I think it's really important to connect with people who are doing it, who can share their experience, who can offer that reassurance, that guidance as well, if needs be, and along the way. And there are so many, and this is one of the joys of the internet, isn't it? There are so many ways that you can connect with other therapists across the world and access. Welcome to Therapist Expanded, where we start a mental health revolution by living our dreams fully and freely beyond industry conditioning and taking every client with us, because we'll only take them as far as we've gone. So join me, your host, Aaron Gibb, and my trailblazing guests and be revolutionary by expanding your mind and your life to your freest and fullest potential. Hello, Therapist Expanding. So glad you're here. If this is your first time, welcome. I'm grateful. And if you're a repeat listener, I'm so glad that you're back. Today, I am interviewing Andy Wareham. Cool how we kind of met each other. It was really just one of those meetings that felt effortless on Instagram. And I'm trusting what's coming to me is meant to and who's coming to me is meant to. This interview you're about to hear with Andy went to vulnerable places fast. And from Andy's personal experience and my own, I share some things that I don't think I've shared here, all the way to reimagining our society. This is, this is an interview I'm very excited for you to hear. And so without further ado, here's my interview with Andy Wareham. Okay, so thank you so much, Andy, for being here today. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. The pleasure's mine. And we're going to start where we do, which is tell us about yourself, your work, and your passions in the field. Okay. Yeah, so in terms of my working life, I've got a long history working in education here in the UK. So I was a teacher for over 20 years, psychology and sociology were my subjects. And then I also ended up moving into senior leadership roles in schools here in the UK as well. And alongside that, 20 years ago, I had my first breakdown or breakthrough, as I like to call them now. So I had my first experience of kind of poor mental health and, and I had episodes of really awful awful depression periodically from that point onwards and received a diagnosis eventually of bipolar type 2 affective disorder mm. don't you just love the labels right they just they just oh. sound <laughs> yeah it was kind of i have a problem with those kind of labels and and everything that they signify having said that i did find it useful to to have something that I could research because I love to research. I love to read in order to find out more about all sorts of different things. So it gave me a little bit of insight into what I'd experienced. And from that came, you know, some comfort really as well. But then I get stuck in the kind of health system in terms of the treatment of that in the UK, which of course is immediately pharmaceuticals. So, you know, I get put on drugs from the outset. And, and although my experience of those wasn't bad eventually over time i just realized that the numbness that they caused was unhealthy and that i needed to kind of feel 
again. Mm-hmm. In order to heal, I definitely needed to feel. So, so that was true. And during that time as well, I had my first experiences of therapy. And that was what made a huge difference to me and set me on a path to healing and recovery. And then was part of the reason why I decided to train as a counsellor as well, because of my lived experience of mental ill health, but my positive experience of therapy. And also really driven by noticing how the young people that I worked with over the years, how in general their mental health had deteriorated so significantly. Mm. You know, I remember when I first started teaching in 1997, I remember there was one very bright academic student who was who had real difficulty and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and went off and studied at Oxford University and, you know, it was great. Yeah, he had a, went on and had a really successful life and career from that point, as far as I know. But that was unusual then, to have a student in the school with that kind of diagnosis. Fast forward 20 years, the diagnoses of so many students for a variety of different disorders were just so commonplace. So because of my own experience, because of how unhealthy the work-life imbalance was working in education, I decided to make that move and change career and train to become a counsellor. And I qualified in 2021. And I've been working in private practice alongside a part-time role as a careers advisor in a six-form college here in the UK. So yeah, and aside from that, I'm, I'm father to two great kids, daughter who's 19 and a son who's 30. Thank you. I never know when people tell me about themselves where they're going to go. And you went very real and very vulnerable. So I am honored. It's fascinating about bipolar. I think we could probably talk about that diagnosis for five podcasts and <laughs> absolutely you said something about the work-life imbalance and my experience and this may not match yours has been that people with a bipolar diagnosis often are excellent workers actually yeah there's almost a rewiring advantageous nature but it's not healthy for the individual absolutely not no it, it wasn't during term time particularly when I was a senior leader, but before that as well, I was regularly working 60 to 70 hour weeks. Yeah. And then you go from that to, to the holiday periods where you just kind of suddenly stop for a while. Mm-hmm. And that cycle of work and rest without any balance, consistent balance was just really unhealthy. And, and stress is obviously a huge trigger for, and, and for me, the accumulation of stress was what was contributing mm-hmm. to my ill health. So I needed better balance. Yeah. I needed better balance. It mirrors the nervous system patterns of what's going on in bipolar, our society, and also traumatic incidents, all that sort of map onto that. And I worked with a lot of people with bipolar diagnosis, and it's been fascinating that they say things like, well, my company loves how I'll work almost endlessly, but then I crash. And I feel like there's so much we could say there. So I'm so grateful. And that you've pointed out not just yourself, but somebody else who was highly successful with a diagnosis. Mm. Oh, I know that a lot of the listeners are from the US where a diagnosis must be given in order for people to access their care through insurance. 
Sure. Which I find just so difficult because of some of the things you said about diagnoses. So I'm so grateful that you're like, I want to say living out loud, like you're really being so vulnerable and clear here. And I love how this has progressed in your life and you've turned it into something, which is to now be a therapist. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about the wounded healer a lot in the profession. And I definitely fall into that category because I, I think like many people, I, I lived so unconsciously for so long. You just programmed to act and behave in certain ways. And that's the product of all sorts of factors that yeah. influence you in your life. But, but I, I, I remember getting to the point where change had to be made. Mm-hmm. And at that point as well, realizing that I had no idea who I was. I had no, my identity was solely tied up. Well, not solely, but mainly tied up in what I did, my job. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. So common in Western culture that that's the definition of who we are. Absolutely. As you said, wounded healer, I can relate. For me, my story was many years of trauma, addiction, Mm. and avoidance and not really facing any of that I would say if I had gone in and gotten the kind of help I actually needed I probably would have got lots of diagnoses but I didn't so and actually that's not true I once went into a therapist in graduate school and he looked at my um, this was a very strange experience he looked at my intake form and all the traumas I had experienced and said I can't help you he was the head of the counseling center there and I remember feeling confused and alone, but I was really surprised. And I think these experiences in our life start to inform us about maybe what kind of, if we want to be a therapist, how we want to be different. I know for me, my experience of wanting to be a therapist and a helper started as a child living in uh, Parkdale in Toronto, which anybody who knows Toronto and Parkdale in the nineties, it was a very scary, violent place. And That was because a large mental health facility was open one day and closed the next because of governmental changes. We had a conservative government come in and the the minister who's infamous here, Mike Harris, he closed that huge inpatient facility and people were just basically let loose. I mean, they were put into housing, but they were mostly um, paranoid schizophrenics. So very quickly, the whole community became you know a difficult place for them and everyone so those experiences of not understanding what was going on I was very lucky to have parents who said because there's a lot of scary things they said it's not the people's fault Aaron they're not well and the system has failed them and I remember thinking okay well huh I once had a doctor look at my medical history as well so this trauma history and say well this must be why you're a therapist these traumas and I said no I'm a therapist because of that experience, but it all kind of came together to this situation where, yeah, we have to confront if we, well, we don't have to, we want to, our own healing. And it it leads us, I think, on a path to being a better therapist. It's a bold statement, but I'm going to stand behind it. Yeah, and and I would stand behind it wholeheartedly as well I think it it really does and when you were talking about that area of Toronto as well and what happened there I I was immediately 
transported back to the 1980s in the UK when we had a conservative government under the leadership of Margaret Thatcher, who I'm sure everybody will know. Even more um, infamous, yeah. Even, even more, more infamous, <laughs> that's right. And, yeah. and, and one of the um, flagship kind of policies in health um, during her, her tenure was what was called care in the community, which mirrors what went on in that part of Toronto because it basically led to the closure of lots of psychiatric units. Yeah. in the UK, and those people theoretically receiving treatment out in the community, out in their own homes, except it didn't work for yeah. most of them. Yeah, it's the paradigm we're now living in, is people are not institutionalized in the same way, but to go one day from open and one day to close with no infrastructure, yeah, it was shocking, and it's definitely a cautionary tale but what we do mm. with this adversity i think is what we're talking about if you learn and then transform it through i even think about the act of listening to people transformation mm. through compassion is a thing right transformation through absolutely yeah we take this adversity and we go okay well we can be victims of it and sometimes we have to be there for a very long time our own experiences mm. what's happened around us Sometimes we need to be in that for decades, perhaps even a lifetime, or I think we can spin it into gold, right? Shift and do something with it. Absolutely right. And, and you know, there are times when I've thought, you know, oh my God, why did it take me to get to my 40s to really start doing the work, you know? Because you, you can be full of regret at that point and think, how much time's been wasted living unconsciously and not doing the work that I now know I need to do. Um, but thankfully, that was short-lived because I don't feel that way because I feel I do feel blessed now that I went through those experiences, even given how painful they were yeah. and how, you know, the ripple effect of that, of my illness, affected other people. You know, yeah. that's a great source of guilt often as well. But... To build all of that, to transform all of that into something that's positive, whereby now I can help many other people and, and have that purpose and live a very conscious life. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't have regrets now. I can't because it's, it's, you know, I'm creating such a fantastic life yes. for myself through doing it. That regret piece feels like it's a stage, almost of the yeah. grief process of what happened. I've worked with most of my clients when I was really seeing clients. Now I work with therapists, but for you know, better part of a decade, seeing complex trauma clients. And because mm -hmm. I worked in the Arctic, which got me started in a niche, and then I came back to this part of Canada. But that was a stage as people were resolving their trauma and coming into a different way of being. There was this stage of like, I'm 60, I'm 50. I'm, and then they'd look at me, especially when I was even younger and they'd think like, mm. wow. And I, I did jump into it early. I mean, I crashed mm. hard. So it was sort of like, well, okay, but it didn't take me till 60. So I was lucky or 40 even, mm. but that was a stage. And then on the other side was some of what you're saying, which was like, I would never, change that and as you were talking it was you were helping me to remember i'm a very spiritual person it's been there my whole life little kid born into this sense of oneness and remembering 
my earliest memories are this unity consciousness didn't have mm. a name for it. And I would try to talk about it and no one would understand. I lived in, right. you know, a very multicultural area and I would keep saying we're all the same. And they'd be like, no, what, what are you talking about? I meant the unity. What happened was then I went through a bunch of traumas starting young and I forgot all of that. And not that long ago, I experienced my own kind of regret because I realized how if I had stayed, even with a toe in that consciousness, my life would be different. But a mentor said to me, Aaron, if you had stayed that suit, I was a weird kid. I was this like super calm, integrated oneness kid. And they said, if you'd stayed mm -hmm. like that, how would you do the work you do? You wouldn't have a clue what suffering is. Well, that's so true. Yeah. It absolutely. was. I mean, it, it sounds idyllic. It sounds idyllic. It was. That state. It, and it is when I go back into it now as my being, I think all of our being is really made of that state. Mm. I mean, it is what we are, but that's not the human condition. And so it wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to understand what we're talking about. It was an educational process, truly an evolutionary process that in this life I needed to suffer to be able to understand anybody who would come and see me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. To be able to form that that therapeutic alliance, that bond with a client, you need to have experienced the the kind of gamut of emotions and yeah. and you talked about your traumas as well. You know, it's, it's to have lived through those, to be able to reflect on them and heal from them. Because that that's always strikes me as well, is that to go through that process, the one thing that you're always able to offer in the position you are in now is hope. Mm -hmm. which is so fundamental when you're working with clients who are who are in distress and can't necessarily hold on to any hope themselves in the moment. Absolutely. It's where, to me, the topic of self-disclosure as a therapist, you know, we're taught to, depending on our school of thinking that we're educated mm. in, some are strict no, some are tons of it, others are used as needed, this has been a place where absolutely there have been times where I've shared with people that I was a drug addicted single mom at some point, that I was a mess. And they usually, it's like I can see all this weight come off of them because they think of us, we, we need to almost be put on a pedestal to be the mm. ideal parent for a while as therapists. There's a reparative process in that projection, but eventually we got to burst that bubble. And not only do we burst the bubble of our own humanity and that we're actually just human beings, but it's this, and we also are, yeah, that beacon of hope because we weren't always like this. No, absolutely. And you talking about the self-disclosure issue is really, really interesting. And, and it was only, it was yesterday I was with a client and I disclosed my experience because it just felt appropriate in the moment to share that because this was somebody who was in a really distressed state and who couldn't see it. And I knew that I had experience that if I shared would enable them to see that this is temporary, that the future, it can be and is hopeful. Uh, and it, and it works, you know, it, it's where it's kind of, you go through your training and, and it can be quite formulaic how you be a therapist. 
in the room, your interventions that you use. Mm -hmm. And the no-no about self-disclosure. Yeah, absolutely. We got that. You know, you can't be so careful with that. It really isn't you. It's not about you. It's about the client, which is true. Mm -hmm. But it can be one of the most potent interventions that you can use with a particular client. 100%. And we know that it's actually the relationship that heals people fundamentally. It's the container that allows for every other intervention to work if it's even going to work. And so that's where I find this so interesting. And I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet anyway about the way therapists are educated. Not a bit. Like if anyone who's followed me knows that for me, a dream would be to be an education of therapists. I'm doing that in some way here, but it's like the indoctrination that happens that what I see when I'm working with therapists for them to truly become empowered around their careers and their fulfillment, I've seen that they must systematically decondition themselves of all of the oppressive fear mongering liability, all of this artifice of like, of course we need to be ethical. I'm glad we have governing Mm. agencies and all that not to harm people, but people want us to be people. Yeah. To be an artificial superhuman doesn't really bring up the kind of connection people need, let alone the hope. We just look like this projected image of perfection. And we are taught that don't get involved in the countertransference. That's yeah. what I love. Because to me, when I'm teaching students, I have interns. That's something I love to do. It's about mm. the countertransference is such a gift. Unwrap it. Learn to understand yes. it. It is a language that goes beyond words. It's like the picture with a thousand words. But they're usually saying, but I've been told it's bad and I'm supposed to not. But does it just keep arising? Yeah. And what happens if you try to ignore it? And they usually come to the realization that then they get enmeshed in it. Yeah. And they act it out. They become the party that the client's psyche is creating they just become the dynamic instead of the corrective experience so for me it's like so much of what we were taught but we were taught at a stressful time generally Mm. and so it got ingrained like when we were children in that in the different brainwave states that really indoctrinate us so it isn't easy to shake it's not and it takes a lot of courage i think for for therapists when they emerge from their training to to do what for me now feels so fundamental and that's to to tune in and trust your intuition because it's not going to let you down (laughs) you know it's really not going to let you down if you do what you feels right in a session it's going to work it's going to have value but it does take a lot of courage to, to start to unpack and leave aside the programming. Oh, well said. Yeah. The programming and the dominance of our mind in Western culture, it is profound. So yes, it does take courage to start to integrate the, what it really means to be a human, this mind, body, emotion, and I'd say spirit. Intuition is that those other literal brains that are living within us. You know, the gut has a brain, the heart has a brain. There's neural networks in there. And you don't even have to be a spiritual person to understand that scientific piece of it. 
to get outside of the dominance of the ever-churning mind. Yeah, it mm. does take courage. Yeah, it does. And just to feel, because I think that it's it comes from a connection that you may not be able to identify. The intuition, the thought, is the product of that connection. And it doesn't matter whether you can name it, Mm-hmm. You, know, you can see it, you can describe it, it doesn't matter. You can experience the product of it, which manifests itself in that intuition. And if you can do that and just trust it, it just yeah. makes such a huge difference. It does take some faith, some trust in the larger forces of us, like even in a human being, how unbelievably amazing we are. And it's interesting because we know as therapists about the subconscious, the unconscious. Mm-hmm. And yet it can be hard to trust what isn't just the rational mind. But if we think about the vastness of the subconscious and unconscious and collective unconscious and all that, and the research that shows how actually the more that you have a problem to solve and you allow it to be solved by that vast, intangible, unknowable, unseeable sea of information, the faster and more efficient that process is and the better the decisions. The fascinating Mm. research on that is that the mind is kind of the ugly redheaded stepchild of the brain. It is just a filter. It's the weakest, slowest. Yeah, but we're so taught to worship at its altar. It's a transformational process to go, thanks so much, friend. I'm not going to listen to you. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, you know, I spent my life and I described it as being largely unconscious up until a point, but very cognitive. You know, I was always in in my brain, always thinking, trying to rationalize and understand things and work them out. And that worked for me in, in certain respects and still does. I still like to exercise that part of myself. But what I've tapped into through this journey of becoming a therapist so much more fun, so much richer than that cognitive part of my brain, that rational part of my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't imagine now what life would be like without it. Well, I can actually, and it would be awful. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I've been able to tap into it and really oh, kind yeah. of appreciate and use it now. What's interesting is as you're talking, I think that that part of me is speaking. I was just sitting here listening to you. But as I was, I saw a flash of two soups. So metaphor, one soup was like a just a broth, just clear, boring, Mm. but okay. Like it'll get you through. You'd survive if you drank it. It'd be a, you wouldn't feel great. Then the other soup is just this, I don't even know how to describe it. It's this like broiling rich mixture and there's vegetables and there's meat and there's whatever. And it's this tapestry basically. And it's way bigger pot. I just think that was my, this part of me honoring that like, thanks for seeing me. And here is a great example of how it would be a, you know, a 2D kind of life. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Completely. And what it does without that, if you're relying just on the cognitive, it denies you connection, connection to self, connection to others. And that's been, I mean, this word connection is so huge for me at the moment. It feels so important to connect with people like you and with lots of other people as well, because there's such, there's so many gifts from connection. 
you know, just in having a conversation. So much learning that we get from each other. And it's the antidote to the programming. It's completely the antidote to the programming. So, so I'm all, and, and I'm all about the connection at the moment and, and the freedom that it can give people as well, that access to greater freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of experience. Mm. I feel that in my heart. Yeah. You've answered the question already, I think, Andy, of what is a time where you had this kind of transformation where you went after something where you didn't and then you mm. did. I think you gave it, you started there in that rich experience of how you came to be a therapist, how you faced mm. those that turmoil and those emotions. Mm. So I had another question that came up and it was, okay. I think it's a piggyback on the beautiful words you just said, but I don't know what you're going to say. So I'm open to anything. And it's, okay. if people listening are either thinking of opening a private practice or are struggling in the beginning stages, what would you say to them? Yeah, that's a really good question. I understand the struggle. I do understand and appreciate the struggle. But I also encourage the courage necessary to do it. It does feel scary. And I, I've been listening to you speak to other guests. And I know that the, in North America, the situation is very different. It feels, from what I've heard from Americans, Canadians, that it's a lot scarier mm. to go move into private practice in, over there. But here, I don't think there are the barriers. We don't have the insurance companies, right? that are predominantly funded. So it feels more natural to go into private practice such that myself and a number of the, the people that I trained with, the wonderful people that I trained with, I was the only male in my training group. <laughs> so the wonderful women in my training group, we all went into private practice pretty much straight away. There were some exceptions. Some have stayed with some agencies over there. So take the leap. And in order to gain the courage, I think it's really important to connect with people who are doing it, who can share their experience, who can offer that reassurance, that guidance as well, if needs be, along the way. And there are so many, and this is one of the joys of the internet, isn't it? There are so many ways that you can connect with other therapists across the world and access that reassurance. But I, when I hear you talking to other guests about the kind of burnout, I can see how it happens. It happens in all sorts of areas of work across the world here in the UK. It happens with people who work, therapists who work in private practice. But you've got more control. You, know, you control your caseload. You decide whether you want to work with particular clients, whether you want to specialize in something or not. You have the freedom the freedom to choose your path, which you don't get if you are working for an agency, mm -hmm. for another agency. So hold on to that freedom. If you value freedom, then grasp it. You know, take mm -hmm. that freedom and go and set up in private practice. Thank you. 
as you were talking, I was thinking about those who are in private practice, but have unconsciously recreated a job they hate. So this message was also for you, people listening, (laughs) I think, because the freedom is so freeing. But it also, as we change something and do something that feels like a leap, we really open the door for the subconscious to come in and be like, well, let me just do this all for you for parts of self. So I've Hmm. met a number of people who got into it from what you're saying and then didn't know what to do. And in the not knowing Hmm. what to do and in the not feeling connected to others or in surrounding themselves with people who were still living deeply in a way they didn't want to and learning from them, which, you know, I love them all. This is all Hmm. our journey. Yeah. The conditioning came in and recreated a private practice from a place of fear, lack, scarcity, have tos, musts, and shoulds. So hearing what you're saying, and you know what's really interesting, Andy? My last interview I did with someone, this hasn't gone live by the time Mm. we've talked about this right now. They were from the UK, recently starting a private practice, feeling like they had all of the same issues as North America, not in terms of insurance, but in terms of people not being able to pay, finding clients, it's so difficult. So as I hear you talking, I think that you, like myself, might have a different way of looking at things as well and have surrounded yeah. you now. I think that's true. I think, I think I have, I come now from a point of abundance and not lack. I trust that what will pan out will pan out for the right reasons and will serve me really well. So it can be really worrying you know when you're starting off in private practice you know will I get enough clients you know can I generate enough income to be able to support myself and my family and of course there are things that you can do you know we all have to learn a bit about marketing and Mm -hmm. things like that but you know what most of my work comes through networks through connection through referrals from other therapists so you know get connected with people yeah I'm very fortunate I work from a building where there are four rooms um, and the guy who set it up and created it had a vision to create an area where therapists would form a community. So we're all independent private practitioners who happen to use these rooms. And we don't, because of the nature of our work, get a chance to get together very often in person. You know, we have a WhatsApp group. And you know, the amount of stuff that's shared there, resources, ideas, referrals, it's great. Yeah. It just works. Community works. Absolutely. And this abundant mindset, this sharing with others in a non-competitive way here, it's just the mm. beauty. So the one thing I would add to what you say is everything you said for people listening and try when you look for connection, find your people right? Mm. There are so many different places now that therapists can connect virtually and probably in person now, but looking for that abundance community, we're collaborators, not competitors. And I've dipped my toes in many pools and definitely found my people had experiences where I didn't, that's totally fine. But when you Mm. find your people that align with that supportive kind of wind at your back is that the word i'm trying to say i I think it it stands yeah that sounds right okay the people who are there for you and that share and have an abundant mindset 
Absolutely. And perhaps in my experience, stand a little bit outside of the indoctrination that we were given in graduate school. Or a lot outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, a lot. A lot outside. A lot outside of that and and the kind of wider programming and conditioning that we all've all experienced throughout our lives as well. I've become so interested in this in, in recent years and about I don't know whether you've read Daniel Quinn's books, Ishmael, Ishmael and I, The Story of B, mm-hmm. and then Beyond Civilization. I would strongly recommend you and your listeners to read. It's a really unique way of kind of explaining our aspects of our history as it developed and civilization, in quotes, and how that developed and how a kind of critique of how constraining that became when we created these systems of hierarchies. He kind of went on in Beyond Civilization to talk about the antidote to this. Where do we go from now? And he talks about uh, this concept of new tribalism. Mm. And this is something that I just totally feel is the way to go, where we begin to reconnect with other people and form communities, smaller communities again, where people mm-hmm. live. And, and it led last week, actually, I was thinking of this, to this kind of vision that I had of this, and this beautiful landscape, this rural landscape in the UK, where we have co-housing. So people who live together in flats or in houses, there's shared space there, community space where they come together. Maybe they, they break bread together, they eat meals together. And there are buildings where there are studios for all sorts of great wellness activities like yoga, like therapy rooms, all this kind of stuff. And on this land, the community also grows its own food, its organic produce. So you get this kind of, this community that's connected and is all about supporting each other and promoting cooperation and well-being and you know the kind of thought for me is if we achieve this we undo everything Mm. that we've been conditioned to believe is what we should be aspiring to for me it's a vision that i had the kind of last week but is now informing where i see my future and what i want to do well you are courageously saying it to the world right now andy so that carries just a vibration. That. <laughs> yes, that carries a vibration of actualization and manifestation and creation that to me up levels and accelerates you towards whatever that's going to look like. I am just the way you painted that. And I saw all the people and I saw your vision and then I saw the pot of soup and the bread. And yep. I was like, oh, yes, I have consumed many an hour on YouTube watching these communities all over the world. So mm. Yeah, you and me are sharing that and that it it absolutely is. That is where we came from originally, way back. That is what we yearn for. And when I think about the therapist listening to this that feels stressed, overwhelmed, taxed, Mm. self-sacrificing, that is not necessarily what's present in life. It's driving, it's separateness, it's have-tos and shoulds and musts. It's this 
incredible tower of illusion of who we should be as parents and workers. Mm. And I don't hear any of that in the community you're describing. I don't, I don't hear all that separation. It's the opposite of separation. It is that coming together that's so important. There is no hierarchy in a community like this. There just isn't. You know, there could be, they could emerge because they sometimes do, but that, you know, for me, it's just not, it's not a feature of it. There doesn't need to be one. There's no need. No. So, yeah. yeah well, it's great. I'm actually really pleased that I've put it out there now because, like you said, it sends the vibration out. It moves me towards actualization. Oh, yeah. So, uh, and I'm sure there are people out there listening and they're thinking, my God, yeah, this is great. I, I want that. Mm-hmm. I oh, absolutely I'm sure. want that. And so, it opens up that it's probably for a lot of us not as far away as we think. I mean, in the US, there's multiple communities like that. Mm, you know, it's yeah. been done. There's a lot of different ways to. I even think in my region, there's a pocket of organic farms. They're kind of all in the same place and they have this, this lifestyle. And they're, even in their case, they're not completely living in a co-housing way, but they have, they have all purchased land beside each other. And they all, it, like you go and you buy a CSA from them and they're like, I don't have what you need, but my neighbor, right? There, like they're pointing my neighbor right yeah. there. He has the best leaks. So I'm just going to call him. And they're even, so there's steps along the way to the complete integration of this, which I would say there's nothing actually holding us back besides our belief system generally. Mm -hmm. So I'm conscious of that as I'm saying it, that's just a stepping stone, but anybody who wants what you're talking about, it is available. It's going to take really thinking differently. It is. And, and that's what it takes. And, and it's easy to get bogged down and thinking about the practical difficulties of creating mm-hmm. something like this. But, you know, I choose not to do that. I choose to, to stay with this vision at the moment because it, it just yeah. feels so good. Oh, yeah. And it will magnetize to you. That's physics. People think mm. of it as woo woo. And it's like, great. I love woo woo. My life, if you look mm. to the right of my of this screen, it's an altar filled with mm. crystals and I'm into woo-woo, but I'm also a scientist. My master's is in science and it's like, like I'm scientifically minded. Physics is the principle that attracts like energetic systems and vibrations to one another. So keeping in the reality that this is your life mm. is much more likely to make that come to be without all of the faffing around as Brits would say yeah. in the like, well, <laughs> I got to make it, I'm just going to take my mind and I'm going to build a map and I'm going to, You know, life's what happens when we're busy making plans. So holding your vision, that does more than our mind can ever understand. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, you know, it feeds my soul at the moment. And I'm sure for others out there, it will feed theirs too, just the thought of it. Through the vibrations and putting out there, we can make this happen. And it needs to happen. It needs to happen more. Oh, beautiful. It's the answer to things like war. It's the answer to even poverty. When we share our resources, we don't need to go to the same lengths to have those needs met in a community. You know, it takes a village is a really great statement. I think of all the parents out there who are very hard on themselves because the way we've been taught to be. And it's Mm. like, it really, people really did raise children in villages. I mean, that, that was an understanding. 
even growing up where I did in a really multicultural region, it wasn't unusual for people to live with large families in one home. I mean, my grandmother was integral in raising me. I spent Mm. more time at my grandmother's house than with my parents, which, you know, had its ups and downs. My grandmother was a really amazing person, but a Holocaust survivor, but it educated me on what the world is like, but living in these units are happening all over the place. It it isn't what you're talking about is Mm. the way humans orient when not conditioned by the Western mentality. Absolutely. It's our nature. It is fundamentally our nature to live in communities like that, to have those connections. So as people are listening to this, if anybody is feeling alone in that, you know, silo in life, stressed, I hope you'll consider reaching out to someone in some Mm. way to feel genuine connection. And I think you've also answered, in my opinion, what mental health revolution looks like, but maybe you have more to add there. I think I have answered that question. For me, the mental health revolution is not about changing what exists now. It's about fundamentally reorganizing our societies Mm -hmm. such that the need for all of this kind of crisis intervention that we have isn't there. Because if you organize communities in the way that we envisage, that I envisage, people are going to struggle. People are still going to experience the full spectrum of human emotions and difficulties, of course, but they're not going to crash. Mm -hmm. They're going to be supported every step of the way within their communities. And ideally, people like us, Erin, become redundant. Mm -hmm. Yes, work ourselves out of a job. I really believe in that. I saw that in the work I was doing when I was working with complex clients, doing the experiential bottom up, let the mind be the last door you go through doing all Mm -hmm. of these, what might be called weird. And actually at the beginning of my career were weird, but now have been all validated, right? Meditation, mindfulness, all these things. I worked myself out of a job pretty quickly with individual clients, but then they spoke about what I did and it always brought more people to me. But working myself out of a job, I was talking about this with my business partner yesterday who works with amazing work in a program called Hold that she's developed with families because working one-to-one with kids, too many people want to see her. Her, She's an expert in that. And she's working herself out of a job continuously. And I love that. And there are ways to do it in the way you're talking about, which is not just great work with people and that works you out and it'll bring more people. But you're talking fundamental. I'm even seeing the soil that you're talking about. Mm. The soil of organic farming has the kind of microbial interaction that actually works on our gut to heal our brain, to heal our mental health. I mean, it's, it's a whole ecosystem approach. There are so many reasons why people are struggling in Western culture. And then so many reasons why what you're presenting would be the answer. Yeah. I, I believe so. In my heart and in my soul, I believe this is where we as a species need to go. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What a mic drop. Well, this has been a pleasure, Andy. Uh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure for me, too. Thanks for listening to Therapist Expanded. 
please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast to help more of our colleagues join the revolution.